Gateway, good day to you. Happy Sunday. As we move into today's teaching, a teaching that largely extends from last week's teaching about Jesus raising up the helpless to become the heirs of all things in God's kingdom, I wanted to take a moment to just share my heart with you as it relates to today's teaching text in Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 31, and the moment we find ourselves in. See, when when 2020 started, we were just a few months into the call that we received to come to Gateway. And if you can think back that far, I mean, it feels like forever ago in this Eternal 20. Um, Remember that 2020 felt like a year that would be fresh and exciting. There was all these people talking about hashtag vision, 2020 vision, and as cheesy as you may say that, there was some mystique around that. And my hope would be that our community, Gateway, would would emerge from the debris that these past two years have been, challenging years, years of hurt and pain and loss, and that we would emerge from from that debris with this fresh sense of resolve to pursue the presence of God, to prayerfully contend for His kingdom, to come here in Des Moines, to join Him in the renewal of all things, our heart, our community, our city. There was, suffice it to say, this expectancy in the air. It was this sense that God was up to something. And then March came, and now for the better part of six months, we've been living in that something. Now, I'm not making a theological claim necessarily. Here's here's what I mean. As I listen and look to mentors, as I engage with colleagues and ministry leaders and and members of our own community, as I look into my own heart and just feel what's going on in there, there is this desire, this pervasive desire for the crisis, the crises that have been defining 2020 to be over. You might have heard it this way, for things to just go back to normal. And I think what we mean when we say that is that we desire our regular rhythms. We want things to to go back to how they were, for kids to have finished their school, for people to have graduated, for summer vacations and travel plans and, and lunches, for goodness sake, just to be inconsequential. We wanted to pick up our side hustle and, and just to go about the world unencumbered by crisis because crisis demands our attention. But, but I don't think that that's actually God's heart for us. I'm not saying that it's God's heart for us to be in crisis. Hear, hear me clearly. What if the very things that we're striving to get back to, the quote-unquote normal, are the things that left us shackled to comfort and complacency. You see, I I don't think that it is God's heart for us to just have better gatherings or for there to be more hype or more prestige. I think that what God wants is to gather our hearts to his heart, to gather our hearts fragmented as they are to himself so that we could be restored and that we could be God's restoring presence here in our families, with our friends, in our city. See, my hope is that God would actually not lift this thing. Whatever this thing is, whatever 2020 is, that God would not lift it until he's done shaping us 
into the type of people who carry Jesus's name with integrity, with love, and with compassion. You see, in all this, we must ask ourselves, who are we becoming? And I share all this and I ask that provocative question, who are we becoming? Because in our text today, we meet a man. We see a man who's living the good life in Jesus' day. One who's like religious folk would, would call blessed. And this man is invited to give his vision of flourishing in the world away so that he can actually live. It's a challenging text and Jesus invites him, and I would say he invites us here today into a holy shift. And so before we go into our passage and work through our teaching text, let us just pray and ask for God's wisdom to come and and speak to us through his word. So Father, we ask, we ask based on your goodness and your faithfulness, your your generosity of self-giving love that you would meet with us through your word, that spirit of the living God, that you would come and search our hearts, that you would bring conviction and not condemnation, that you would bring comfort in the place of condemnation, that you would bring comfort in the place of, of past and present wounds, and that you would graciously and gently lead us to be who you know us to be, that you would call us in love today and remind us Remind us that there is another way to be human in this world, and it is the way of Jesus. So Holy Spirit, we pray, come, lead us, lead us to Jesus, we pray. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, you can flip or tap your way on over to Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 17. And really, we're just going to pick up where we left off from last week. And this is what we read. And as he was setting out on his journey, this is Jesus Mark is talking about, a man ran up and knelt before him, this reverent posture, and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And our pragmatic and Western minds, we love this question. Like, if, if you've been with us now in the gospel according to Mark, you were like, yes, finally somebody's asking the question I've been looking for. This guy gets it. He's going to ask Jesus to tell us the do's and the don'ts of heaven and hell. This is great. So what do I have to do to get in and stay out of that other place? That's really what we hear, is it not? And while we're thinking about heaven and hell and morality and religion, this guy's really asking a different question. See, for Jesus and his disciples, the Hebrew people in general, the human story is divided into these two epochs. It's this age and the age to come. This age, this present time, is marked by evil and injustice and lying and adultery, sin writ large, and in the end, death. The age to come, well, that was marked by God's judgment. Now, some of you just recoiled a little bit. You got a little squirmy in your stomachs because you heard the word judgment, and it has a derogatory tone to you. It it just sounds a bit off. It's condemning, and, and in your mind, it can even be the opposite of justice. But in the biblical imagination, in the framework that Jesus is functioning in, and certainly the framework for this man, 
Judgment is all about justice. Judgment is is really the space where sin and death are defeated in this age to come. So, So this man's really question is something like this. What must I do to withstand the day of judgment and enter into God's renewal? So this is less about where you go when you die, heaven, hell, all that, and more about how do you enter into God's renewing life? Because if you didn't know this, heaven and earth are separated and they're coming back together. That is the renewal of all things. That is where it's all headed. And this guy knows that. And if this feels new and awkward, just consider this. The thinking was just that God who created all things in the beginning, good and beautiful, that when the new age came, that God would once again renew all things so they would be good and beautiful. So this man's question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's about restoration. It's about living into God's renewed reality. So the idea is that when new creation breaks out, it will break out in the wake of God's judgment. And apparently this man sees some sort of credibility in Jesus to speak to God's forthcoming and inbreaking reality. And so he asks. And listen to Jesus' response in, in verse 18. Go there with me. And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And this is the typical Jesus answer that we don't want to hear. See, the man asks what feels like a straightforward question, and Jesus says, this? So so to color this interaction a bit more, Jesus and this man are conversing in what's called an honor and shame culture. So this is uh, a, a framework where there is a limited amount of good. Think about a scale. And as one side goes up, the other side goes down because there's a limited amount of weight. There's a limited amount of good. So if, if one person is honored, indirectly another is shamed. So you can belittle yourself to make much of another, but it, it's going to cost you something. This is not how we function in the world today. It's not at least our dominant framework in the West here. Uh, but, But think about it this way. When this man meets Jesus with flattery, it shows that he knows how to get some business done in this age. He knows how the economy, how the scales move up and down, how he can belittle himself, flatter someone else to, to make them think much of themselves. But Jesus, Jesus doesn't bite. Jesus asks, why do you call me good? He he flips the moment. See, see, according to custom, Jesus probably should have responded like something like, uh, hey, good, good Lord, good man, and then gone into the interaction. Instead, we get this riddle of a line. No one is good except God alone. And and then he goes on, verse 19. Look Look how he follows this up. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. See, in Jesus' day, there was no middle class. There was destitute, poor, and then the opulent wealthy. And more often than not, those wealthy folks, they would acquire their wealth at the expense of the poor and the vulnerable, often through unjust means, So notice how the commandments that Jesus brings forward, that he introduces into this interaction with this man, they're all interpersonal. 
These are all commandments from what's called the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments. These are the ten words that are, are given by God to his people to frame how they live in respect to him and to one another. And Jesus calls on the one another space. It's as though this man's flattery prompts Jesus to, to ask, okay, is God's life really apparent in you? God's generative and self-giving life, is that really on display? Because you are talking about life in the age to come. So let's just see where you stand. And as best we can tell, and we can't be 100% sure, Jesus is essentially asking how this man made his money. Are you truly a person of integrity? I mean, he is asking a question about the day of God's justice. So it seems right to ask a question related to justice. And where do we see justice play out the most? Between you and me, between you and your neighbor, between you and the person at Hy-Vee. That's who you see justice play out in between. And look at the man's response, verse 20. And he said to him, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. So he keeps on with the flattery, teacher, Essentially, this is a common phrase, rabbi. Jesus is not his rabbi, so notice that. But he says, I have kept all these things from my youth. And all the commentators that I reference and look to, to like these are people smaller than me, I don't just make this stuff up. But they all come to this and they have an opinion about the sincerity of this man's statement or the insincerity of this man's response. And they all, at some point, submit they don't really know. It's all just a guess. So why does it matter if he's sincere or not? It, it really seems like his conscience is clear before Jesus, and so it does it matter? Well, let, let me, I think it does. So let me just ask this question. Have you ever had a blind spot in your life? I'm not talking about when you're driving. Have you ever had a blind spot in your character? You, you say one thing, but you do another. These are what we call growth opportunities, <laughs> to be kind, I suppose. And, and you don't really know about a growth opportunity until someone, a, a friend, a spouse, a supervisor, uh, you know, they bring this forward and they courageously correct or challenge you in that growth area, that growth opportunity, that blind spot. And this is what's interesting about these blind spots is the moment that you're made aware of them, and this is simple, but it's not simplistic. The moment that you're made aware of the blind spot, you are no longer blind to that spot. Do you see what I'm getting at? You're responsible for that thing. You're responsible for this new way of seeing the world. Once you couldn't see it, but now you can. So if this man is sincerely seeking the wisdom of God in Jesus of Nazareth, and Jesus points out a blind spot, he's on the hook. If he's not, well, then it's just religious performance and we can go on. But, but look what Jesus does next. L look, look at this response here. This is verse 21. And Jesus, looking at him, and we'll come back to that, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go, sell all that you have, give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. Jesus looked at him. The word there has this intensity to it. It's this idea of studying or interrogating with your eyes. Like you're looking to find what's going on. It's, it's maybe how you would examine a, a sculpture or that you're grading for something. 
And then what we read next is that Jesus loves him. So he examines him and he loves him with this agape love, this self-giving love. And from this place of love, Jesus says, go, sell, give, come, follow. Go, sell, give, come, follow. So remarkable. Jesus says one thing you lack, and then he makes a way for him to follow him. See, when we elevate a way of life before God, that is essentially a way of following Jesus, a way of being religious, and, it's, and that way is based on merit or performance and, and surrounded by consumption, that way of life starts to change us. Starts the way, it starts to change the way that we see the world, and, and it starts to change the way that the world sees us. Here's what I mean. Just look down at verse 22. Jesus says these things, and then we read this. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. This man was blind to his possessions hold over his heart. Have you ever, have you ever felt that? If, if any of you have watched Marie Kondo or any of those like organization shows or minimalist shows, you might feel this. You go and you get all of your clothes and you dump them out in the center of your living room and you start sorting through them and you realize, oh my gosh, I have not, I didn't even know I had this anymore. But then you go to part with that thing and there's a reluctance. There's a, ooh, that, that's, that's the sense. And now that's a minor thing. But this man, his possessions were great and he didn't realize the hold that they had on his heart, this, the center of who he is. And notice, Jesus doesn't shame him. Jesus doesn't scold him. He doesn't judge him for his wealth. No, Jesus invites him to reimagine his wealth, to, to lay it up in the storehouse of heaven. This is an interesting phrase. Um, see, you don't put money in the bank and then just draw on it continually and to spend it now. You put it in the bank to maybe accrue interest or save it for another time. Jesus is saying, put it in the storehouse. In the age to come, it will be loosed. And he invites him to do this through quite a radical shift, a, a holy shift, if you will. He says, go, sell, give. And the disciples at this response to this man. And just as an aside, notice that when Jesus says these things, that they are amazed and exceedingly astonished. This man, with all of his wealth, is thought highly of. Who did they in the previous story prohibit from coming to Jesus? Children with no status. But this man runs and kneels before Jesus. They make no obstructing for him. They let him come right in. This is the guy that we need, Jesus. Get him in here. He has status. He has social capital. Let's, let's get him into our community. Maybe he could come with us. And the thing that would bring them more status, Jesus says, get rid of all of it. They are amazed and exceedingly astonished at Jesus. Just, just listen to this interaction that extends. This man is now grieving this statement from Jesus, turns away, and Jesus, seizing a teaching opportunity, as Jesus would do, turns to his disciples and says this. This is in verse 23. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his word. But Jesus said to them again, children, 
how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And stop right there. Uh, Preachers will do a a fancy job of talking about a, uh, like, a gate in a larger gate and that it's like a camel is going to walk through there and when it goes through that eye of the needle, it'll knock off the load. Okay, um, that's not what's happening right here. This is like hyperbole. Jesus is saying, literally, you can't get a camel through the eye of the needle. The only way you could is maybe put the camel in some sort of large blender and then put it through that way. So yes, when you're sewing at home, Karen, this is the needle Jesus is talking about. Pick up verse 26. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to Jesus, Then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. All things are possible with God. They're shocked. Because wealth was commonly understood as the tangible evidence of God's blessing and favor in the world. Jesus cuts right through that. So right before this, Jesus took children who have no status in their world, literally, they offer nothing, and he centers them in the conversation. He he puts them front and center in the economy of God and says, these are the ones, the vulnerable, the lowly, these are the ones. These are the leading citizens in God's kingdom. Jesus took them in his arms, and he blessed those ones. To this man, he says, go, sell, give, come, follow me. And at this point, we just have to say, money is not evil. Wealth, not evil. Sometimes, wealth is acquired through unjust means. If you think about our nation. I mean, if you want to read an interesting book, go read Cast the Origins of Our Discontents. It'll tell you a thing or two about how wealth is accumulated when people who essentially have no access to anything are able to enter into the game and they say, okay, come along, but they haven't been playing the game for, you know, two centuries. That is, that is evil. But money is morally neutral. But you put that hand, that money into the hands of people who are themselves not morally neutral, but people who have turned inward on themselves to elevate their interest over and against that of others, then it becomes evil. And interestingly enough, Peter's here to show us this. Go down to verse 28. Peter, we just got, can we just have a moment for Peter? Like, come on. It's like we haven't seen him since, you know, a little while now. It's been about a couple chapters, and here he is, and he's he has to be pretty sparked up to jump in here with Jesus. Listen to his words, verse 28. Peter began to say to him, This is Jesus. I I, I love this. See, we have left everything and followed you. No, you haven't, Peter. You know when they go to Capernaum? It's Peter's house that they go to. The boat, it's probably Peter's boat. He has a business, he's doing pretty well. We've left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, I imagine Jesus interrupting. I have no idea. I imagine him interrupting Peter. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house, brothers, sisters, mother, father, children, lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, lands with persecutions 
and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. See, in the realm of humanity, we we want to enter God's kingdom in a way that's familiar to us. There's no shame in that. There's no condemnation in that. However, there is a recalibrating that needs to be done. There is a holy shift that needs to occur because that framework is, in many cases, opposed to God's way. And we just have to reconcile with that. This is a passage that helps us do that. Here's what I mean. We live in a meritocracy of sorts where um, if I want to receive a scholarship, I have to do well. I have to have the credentials to do that. We are offended when people go into spaces without any merit and receive things for free. That's why affirmative action was such an uproar in certain spaces and is still today. It like confronts and affronts things of privilege and prejudice. That's what's kind of happening. So we live in this meritocracy where our credentials or our family's credentials, they mean something in the world and to the world. And Jesus is saying that from that posture, it is impossible to enter the kingdom of God. We gotta be like children who bring nothing to the table because it's completely a work of God that draws us into this new reality. Just check out this line from Jesus in verse 30. He says this, now in this time, See, this is, this is so scandalous. And I bring this up because Jesus is saying that you don't have to wait until the age to come to reap the blessing of God's life now. But what that means is your merit, it doesn't mean anything because Jesus is bringing the blessings of heaven right now through the church. I'm not talking about more faith. I'm not talking about sowing seeds into the God's kingdom. I'm not, I'm not talking about like a prosperity light gospel. I am talking about Jesus of Nazareth saying that God's kingdom is breaking in through his redeeming work that will be epitomized on the cross. It's like already, but it's not yet. So it's broken in in between this age and the age to come. This is crazy. Just look at these words again. No one has left house, brothers, sisters, mother, father, children, lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now. See, Peter's flexing like he's better than this anonymous man. We've left everything, Jesus. And Jesus basically interrupts him and says that heaven's blessings are breaking out now, that the fellowship of the church is greater than any loss. That yes, maybe you indeed do leave those things for the, for the sake of the gospel, for Jesus' namesake, for the kingdom of God, but you gain so much in it. And hear this, following Jesus will cost you something. In the case of this anonymous man, it's his wealth. And we just have to point this out. Uh, this is not a general call to poverty in the life of the church. And some of you are like, oh, Amen, because I was feeling a little bit convicted there. If you're feeling convicted about your heart and your wealth, let Jesus work on you. Perhaps he wants to loose a gift of generosity in your heart for the life of the church and the good of the city. Do not ignore that. But just know there is not a general call to poverty here. This is a specific call to a specific man. 
And in the same breath, Jesus does not disdain wealth. I mean, there are literally wealthy women who are bankrolling Jesus's ministry. He has ex-tax collectors who would be among the wealthy. Peter is a business owner with bulk of property. He's not poor. Peter's doing pretty well. But what Jesus is opposed to is when things like wealth and wealth itself get a hold of our heart, that it possesses our hearts rather than we possess it. And when it's taken all over our hearts, Jesus is offended, he's affronted, he's indignant because his, his heart is for our hearts. See, the anonymous man, Peter, you, me, we get caught up in the spirit of this age. We get caught up in the hustle, we get caught up in the politics, the investment portfolio, the things I, I have, the things I do. We get caught up in the lifestyle, the, the secondary religious issues. We get caught up in all of this stuff and we miss the reality of heaven's blessing pouring out through the life of the church and it's through the last and the least. We miss that Jesus took up the children in his arms, laid his hands on them and blessed them. And we miss it because we're unwilling to shift. And like this man, we often walk away from Jesus' call to go, sell, give, come, and follow. Or we just miss out on the call to come and follow. And we go away grieving. See, the gospel, the gospel is not a call to kick back and relax now that sin and death have been dealt with definitively on the cross. No, the gospel is a call it's a call going out to this man. It's a call going out to you. It's a call going out to me to be set free from what holds our hearts captive. Like if you want to pray a scary prayer in response to this text, pray this. God, what is holding my heart captive? What, 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 is, what has hold of my heart more fiercely than the way of Jesus? If you want to pray a scary prayer, start praying that. And then if he starts speaking to you through his word, through like prophetic words from friends, through dreams, do not ignore what he has to say. Don't forget that the anonymous man here who's kept the law from his youth, that Jesus says to him, you lack one thing. And I think it's this. I think it's to be with Jesus. I think the one thing is Jesus. Yes, of course, he says, go, sell, give. But lastly, he says, follow me. That is the thing. It's always the thing. So who's got a hold of your heart? What's got a hold of your heart? If it's not Jesus, then what is it? It doesn't mean that we can't love and enjoy and desire other things, but when those desires get disoriented and we elevate them over and against the way of Jesus and they actually start to take up more stock in our heart than integrity and love and compassion, then, well then, Jesus' words might be grievous to us and his invitation to follow him leaves our hearts fallen. You see, what comes to the surface, it may feel impossible to let go of. 
But when it comes to the kingdom of God, we're not limited by human calculations. With man, it is indeed impossible, but with God, it is not. For all things are possible with God. Did you know that? Did you know what you think is impossible is actually possible with God? If you feel like in this season, in the eternal 2020, you've been hitting the wall time and time again, perhaps it's because it is impossible. You feel like your life of prayer is bankrupt. You feel like God is absent. You feel like, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Like that's the call of your heart and it just feels impossible. Perhaps the one thing you lack is Jesus. Perhaps that's the one thing. See, God God in Christ gives us the gift of himself. He gives us the gift of his life. He gives us the gift of his love so that we could be the type of people, the type of community, the type of church that lives in kind, that gives ourselves away in love. See, Jesus is inviting this man and he's inviting you and he's inviting me to be who he sees us as, the ones who are loved and affirmed apart from our doing. See, all of our religious fervor, all of our desire to get back to normal, none of it will muster up the presence of God. This is the reality, church, is that God has already turned toward us, that in Christ, he's already saying, come, follow me. The invitation is wide open. The question is, will we step through? Will we be willing to count the costs? Will we be willing, as Jesus says earlier, to take up our cross daily and follow him? So this is not a one and done kind of a thing. This is a daily thing. This is a moment of endurance. And I think that God's heart is to build a church filled with resilient disciples who no matter what comes, bring on the crisis, we could say, because 2020 is going to be the best year we've ever known because we are pursuing the presence of God. We are prayerfully contending for his kingdom to come here in Des Moines as it is in heaven, and we're joining him joyfully in the renewal of all things as he renews us because the one thing we lacked, we lack no longer. We are with him.